The topic for tonight is the quiet ending of the Persian period. We discussed Ezra, we discussed Nehemia. I'll take it off your hands, thank you. All right. Nehemia concludes his career sometime around the year 430 before the Common Era. The Persian period ends in the year 333 with Alexander's conquest of the ancient Near East. So there are a hundred more years. What do we know about that time period? So I'll give you a quote from a book recently written by Seth Schwartz, a professor at Columbia. The title of the book is The Ancient Jews from Alexander to Muhammad. And he writes, The period of Judah under the Achaemenid Persians remains almost as much a blank for us as it was for the ancient rabbis who simply eliminated it from their chronology. In other words, the rabbis didn't know much about it 2,000 years ago, and we don't know much about it today, even though we have years and years of academic scholarship uh, under our belt. We don't know much. There isn't much evidence, not much of a record. It's a quiet period. Not much happened, maybe. Well, the Yehud, the region of Yehud, under Persia, was the first truly Jewish state. It wasn't under Jewish complete sovereignty, it was under Persian sovereignty, but it was the first Jewish state in that the people began calling themselves Yehudim, which we still call ourselves today, Jews. There was tension between the people of the land and the children of the exile, the Amharats and the Bnei Hagola. The Bnei Hagola, the children of the exile, who are now returnees, are highfalutin, they think that they're the, the greatest thing ever, and that they're, only the, they're the true Israel, and everyone else is inferior in some way, religiously or even uh, nationally. The, these two groups are competing over limited resources and over religious differences, most likely. Ezra and Nehemiah were effectively tyrants, in that they forcibly merged these two groups together and created one cohesive community of Jews in Eretz Yisrael under religious law of the Torah, of the Mosaic Torah. The building project of the wall of Jerusalem, when Nehemiah gets there, may have been designed, aside from practical defense of the city, to foster this unity between the two competing groups of Jews, those who had never left and those who were coming back. There is a strong ideological bent at this time towards ethnic separatism. Um, the Jews are the Jews, and the half-Jews are not Jews, and everyone else who is not of our, uh, of our nation shall be cast out, shall be beyond the pale. But within the group of Jews, there's a certain egalitarianism in Jewish life, and there was an attempt to reduce the priest uh, to nothing more than the landless clergy, and not to be these uh, wealthy people who rule the country. That effort basically failed, because we know from the later period of the Second Temple that the Kohanim were quite wealthy and uh, were in control economically and politically. But there is this attempt at an egalitarian society within, within the Jews themselves, while casting out everyone who's not of the group. Uh, all this comes to an end when Alexander defeats Darius III at the Battle of Isis. That's not I-S-I-S like today, but I-S-S-U-S, uh, which is in uh, southeastern Turkey, Asia Minor, near Alexandretta, in the year 333. Uh, Judea falls shortly thereafter, and as we'll talk about next week, uh, Alexander gives permission for the Jews to live according to their ancestral customs. So there's no radical departure between the late Persian period and the early Greek period. You re it remains uh, the community of Jews in Eretz Israel under the, the rule of the Torah, under the auspices of a high priest with a foreign overlord. Okay. Um, 
if we don't know much about the period, how can we try from the, the literature to get a flavor of the period, even if we don't have specific events that we can say this happened in this, this day with these, these particular people, but how do we get a flavor of the period? So the, the book, Divrei Hayamim Chronicles, is most likely written in the first half of the 4th century before the Common Era. It's under uh, Persian, the, the, the Persian period, and it is a history, or a supposed history, of the world from Adam and Eve, or really Adam, uh, until the days of Cyrus. It's a short version of everything from the beginning until the return to Zion. How would that tell us at all about the Persian period? After all, it ends with Cyrus, and that's the beginning of the Persian period. The answer, you have to read between the lines. So, <coughs> first of all, the attitude of the Book of Chronicles towards the Torah is an interesting one. If you read the, the Nevi'im, Rishonim, the early books of the prophets, would you know that the, the, the players involved are Jewish, are observing the religion of the Torah? It's a, it's a very basic question. If you read Yeshua, uh, Shoftim, and Shmuel, Aleph and Bet, would you know that these people put on tefillin and kept Shabbos and kept kosher and didn't eat pork and didn't why, eat Shemitah fruit? Not? Why would they not? Uh, given yeah. given no, no, where no, we no. are, yeah. we would think that we follow that. Okay. Terms. But the Vim were also reprimanding them half the time that they weren't following. Okay, but following what? Um, ways of righteousness, ways of righteousness. Okay, so there's not much religion that we would call Judaism in the early books of the Nevi'im. It just, it's, just not, it's just not there. There's plenty of Judaism as we would know it in the book of Dibre Hayamim. So clearly the author of Chronicles is, is, is writing at a time when the Torah has been popularized. The average Jew knows a little bit more about it than they had several centuries earlier. Judaism is the religion of the country. People are keeping the law, the, te- the, the mitzvot of the Torah, to an extent that may not be uh, to the liking of the great sages. Maybe there are still some failings, but we notice in the text more mitzvot. They are simply, it appears in the text, something that didn't appear earlier. Okay, but what about stick, sticking to the details of the law? So here we have uh, sort of an ambivalence. On the one hand, David, according to Chronicles, has the Levites carry the ark on their shoulders after the episode of Uzzah. What happened to Uzzah? He touched it. He touched it and he died. Boom! Struck by lightning. Okay, what, why was that a sad episode? Well, aside from the fact that he died, it's that David was not in compliance with the law of Torah, that when you carry the ark, it has to be on the shoulders of the Levim. Instead, it was on a wagon. Last I checked, if you look in Parshish Naso, that's not supposed to be the case. That there are other parts of the Mishkan are carried on the wagon, but the sacred vessels are on the shoulder of the Levites. So, after the episode of Uzzah, then it goes on the shoulders. So, we see in Chronicles, David is in compliance with the law, of Mosaic law. But on the other hand, we have Chizkiyahu observing Passover in the second month of the year. When is Passover? What month of the year? The first month of the year. So you could say it was Pesach Sheni, you could make all sorts of Terutzim, but I don't like Terutzim, I like the plain reading of the text. It says he made Passover in the second month of the year. That's not in compliance with Mosaic Torah. Also, you have the Levim serving from the age of 20. What does the Torah say about when the Levim serve? What age? So it's actually a, it's a stira in the Chumash itself. 
It's a, it's a contradiction. One Pasuk says 25, and one Pasuk says 30. And how does, how does the, the Halacha, or, and Rashi on the, on, the, on the spot, explain the difference between 25 and 30? That at 25 you begin learning the Halachot, and five years you study, and at 30 you start working. You start working. Here it says 20. So is the, is the author of Chronicles playing fast and loose with the Halacha? Maybe. Why might the author of Chronicles lower the age for Levite service? Any ideas? You need an all of You need all you can get. Remember, we learned a few weeks ago that when Ezra was going to Eretz Yisrael, they, he, they had to make a special uh, arrangements to, to, to find Levium because no Levium wanted to go with him since it was a low-class job. It wasn't a priestly job and it wasn't going to guarantee them a great income. So if you, if you need every Levi you can find, drop the age down to 20. So Shat Hadchak or Horat Shah, emergency measure. But you see, in any event, the author of Chronicles occasionally is sticking to the, to the, to the letter of Mosaic Law and sometimes departing left or right. Some, uh, there's some wiggle room. Wasn't that Oh, sure, yeah, yeah. They were very involved with, 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 with ritual purity. Second Temple time is a time of, of, of great concern for Tumavatara. When that began, I'm not 100% sure, but I would like to believe that it was extended almost the whole length of the Second Temple period. Okay. <coughs> what else in the Book of Chronicles do we find? So, the Book of Chronicles is a genealogy in the beginning, in the first nine chapters, from Adam to uh, the kingdom, to the monarchy. And Saul is short-shrifted, he gets one chapter, as opposed to in the book of, of Shmuel, where the, the reign of Saul gets almost 20 chapters, and you don't get to King David until the end of Shmuel Aleph. So in, in Chronicles, that's not the case. The Davidic dynasty is the only one that really matters. And Saul gets one short chapter, and done, he's out. Then the Davidic line is in charge. Wasn't yeah. really Shaul, and he wasn't in for a long time. He was not. According to, 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 according to, uh, to the Seder Olam, he's only there for two years. According to another version, he was there 17 years. But either way, he's one man with a relatively short tenure and can be forgotten by history very easily. Okay. So the Davidic dynasty gets all the attention. They are the, the, the sole legitimate heirs to the throne of, of Israel, which leads to another question. What is Israel, according to the Chronicles? Israel, in the earlier books of the Bible, refers to what? The northern kingdom. And Judah is the southern kingdom. In Chronicles, that's not the case. Yisrael, or Kol Yisrael, all Israel, refers to the kingdom of the south after the fall of the north. Which goes to what you had said a couple weeks ago, that there are elements of the northern population that come southward and are part of the late Judahite kingdom. So the book of Chronicles says... Who's, who's all of Israel? The southern kingdom. As for the north, we don't really care much about them. They're lost to history. The ten tribes, those that are gone, are gone, never coming back. And the south is the only thing that matters. That's Kol Yisrael. Primarily Judah, but referred to as Yisrael. How right. much of the north uh-huh. territory was in this new, new Israel? Oh, in the second commonwealth? Yeah. Very little. Because Yehud only was about 25 miles by 30 miles. Uh... Basically, none of the northern kingdom was in Yehud. It's uh, from Ramallah southwards towards Hebron, towards Beit Sur, from the Jordan River towards the beginning of the Shvela, uh, with, you know, the coastal plain. It's a very small region. Later, it would be expanded, and after the Hasmonean conquest of other parts of the country, the borders would be a lot larger. The country was called? was called Yehud. It was still called Yehud, not Israel. No, no, no. Okay, so... Getting back to the issue of it being a genealogy. 
we're having na- we have names of people, but not uh, much discussion of events of history. Three events or phenomenon uh, in history are left out entirely. Yitziat Mitzrayim, Matan Torah, and Kibush Haaretz. The exodus from Egypt, the giving of the revelation of Torah at Sinai, and the conquest of Canaan are excluded from the book of Chronicles. Why? If it's a history of the world from the beginning to end, why? The history of the Jews? You would think so. And yet they're not there. So there's a reason why. At this time, when the book of Chronicles is written, most Jews live in the diaspora. And most people living in the land, within the borders of the land of Israel are non-Jews. So there was a desire to emphasize the continuity of Jewish possession of Eretz Yisrael, that we are the indigenous peoples, that we are the natives. And not that Abraham came from Ur Kasdim or Aram Naharaim or Haran, wherever he came from, somewhere to the north or to the east, and not that we were slaves for 400 years in Egypt and that we kicked out the Canaanites at some point in the 12th century. None of that is relevant because we'd rather not mention it. We'd rather believe, oh, the Jews always here, this is our land from time immemorial, and everybody else is a foreigner, a foreign interloper. That's the goal. So it's to, to uh, bolster Jewish claims to the land and to encourage those in Chutz La'aretz to come back home, that this is really your native land. You don't belong in Babylonia or wherever you might be along the Tigris and Euphrates. You belong uh, in Yehud. Right, so that's another uh, point uh, that Chronicles tries to make. Okay. Then we have the issue of Messianism and eschatology. There is a lot of Messianism, end-of-day speculation, in other books of the Bible. Like which ones? Daniel. Daniel, especially. What else? So, not, not the, uh, There's a little bit in Ezekiel. Okay, a little bit in Isaiah. Th- speaking about what's going to happen long term, later on. You don't have that in Chronicles. You have simply a, a record of the past that is to a degree fictionalized, and even the rabbis admitted it was fictionalized, that they said about it was, it was given for homiletic purposes, for expounding upon the verses, not for a plain literal re- a reading. And as from a figure as the Shagaz Aryeh, the Shagaz Aryeh in the 18th century said that there are certain uh, details, a little minutia, where Divrayamim contradicts other books of the Bible, and we can't bother trying to reconcile it, maybe the authors of that biblical book made a mistake. Mistake? I, I, I once before mentioned that the Bible made a mistake, and that the Talmud recognizes it. In what in reference to what? Where, did the, where according to the Yerushalmi, did the Bible make a mistake? Tisha Av. Okay? Ninth of Av. We fast in the ninth of Av. What about Tisha B'er Tammuz? Do we fast in the ninth of Tammuz? No. no. When do we fast? Shivasa. Shivasa B'er Tammuz. What does the Bible say? When were the walls breached? The ninth of Tammuz. So how could it be ninth if it's the seventeenth? So the Bavli says, well, one was the first temple, one was the second temple. And what does the Yerushalmi say? Kilkul Cheshbonos Yeshkan. The Bible made a mistake. Chaotic times, an, an error crept in. So the Shagasaya says when it comes to Chronicles, a lot of errors crept in. It's not the, the most reliable book. Uh, so, it's for homiletic purposes, for expounding upon it. In truth, 
We don't know how the rabbis of the Talmud would have reconciled some of these details that seem to contradict other books because there is no full-length Midrashic treatise on Divrei Hayamim. There is on Bereshish Mos Dvarim. There is on the five Megillas. There is on Tehillim. There is on Mishlei. Many of the books of the Bible have full-length Midrash Agada, going line by line, almost every line being covered. Divrei does not have that. Therefore, we don't know what they would have said. Okay, but getting back to to <coughs> what the, the, the issue of Messianism, it's not there. So you could argue, and many scholars did that when the book was written, the Persian kingdom was very uh, firm. It was solid. There was no doubt it would, it would continue for the foreseeable future. And so the Jews are not supposed to, at least in the eyes of this author, think about the end of days scenario and a grand restoration of political sovereignty for Israel under the, Messian, under the Davidic dynasty, but rather just observe your, your religion, do your mitzvot, and be grateful for the fact that the foreign overlord is a nice one, and we're allowed to do whatever it is we're allowed to do. The benevolent dictatorship in Susa is allowing us to keep our mitzvahs, that's good enough. I don't know so much as it's self-censorship or maybe just a sincere belief that this is this is all we could hope for. So, now, so it predates Chronicles in the days of the, the 6th century before the Common Era. Messianism was very strong during the Babylonian captivity. It also re-emerges in the days of the Hellenistic persecutions when the, la- the latter half of the book of Daniel is written. So when Antiochus IV is b- bossing us around and life stinks... So we think to a better future. Just like under the Romans in the early part of the first century when you have all the false messiahs and life stinks, we think to a better future. But when life is relatively okay and things are comfortable and religion is not being persecuted, no talk of messianism. Uh, there, uh, other scholars disagree with this and they say that the author of Chronicles did not see Jewish cultic activity under Persian rule as the be-all and end-all, but rather that even under the less than optimal conditions, Israel had not been abandoned by the deity. That's a, lot, that's a much weaker version of the same idea, that uh, life is okay, it's not, it's not the, the best we could ever hope for, but it means that Hashem didn't forsake us. There's a foreign ruler, but he's alright, he's not terrible, Hashem is on our side. Okay. Um, <coughs> there's a major historical debate, major, major historical debate, concerning the extent to which the Jews of the late Persian period in Yehud were uh, touched by outside cultural influences. Conventional wisdom was that Jews lived alone. Am levadad yish kon. My bar mitzvah pasha. Numbers chapter 23, verse 9. So we are in Am levadad yish kon. Who said that? Bilam. Bilam, the goy, said about the Jews, there are people that dwells apart, dwells alone. And in antiquities, Josephus uh, mentions this and develops this idea at length that in the early part of the Second Commonwealth, the Jews were untouched by outside influence. But is that really true? So Elias Bickerman, who is one of the great scholars of, uh, of Hellenistic Judaism, he rejects that idea. He says that uh, the Jews were not free of foreign contagion and that the material culture 
found in the archaeological surveys, says otherwise. A person from Jerusalem could make the short trip down to Ashkelon on the coast and get his hands on pots and and trinkets depicting Egyptian deities or Greek deities. And they would take a look at it and see, what is this? They'd want to know. And they would learn about other religions, other deities. And basically, the land of Israel was part of a long belt of Greco-Egyptian and Asiatic culture that um, recognized the existence of many gods, not that the Jews worshipped other gods, but that they were aware of the existence of other faith groups, and they saw evidence of other cultures. The Athenian coins were the main currency for trade in the land of Israel in the late 5th century BCE. So, although the Greeks haven't taken over, their currency, and to an extent their culture, is present in Eretz Yisrael. Certainly along the coast, but the coast is not that far from the interior. How wide is Israel? 40 miles, not that far. So you could easily get uh, from one end to the other. And pious Jews, pious Jews, were using coins that had graven images on them. Graven images of people and of animals, and animals that were representatives of the, the, of the gods of other people. Uh, so, but they were using it for currency. I'm not, I'm not uh, trying to, to disparage their religiosity. I'm, I'm saying, but, but, they, but they, uh, they see that it exists. In other words, in, 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 in Williamsburg, so there's a picture of George Washington and the dollar bill. That's bad enough. Yeah. But in, in Yerushalayim of 2,400 years ago, there was a picture of Avodah Zorah and the dollar bill. They're out of their environment. Yeah. They know everything. So. Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah. The coins in those days went by weight. Ah, so in the, in the very old days, it went exclusively by weight. There was, there was no minted coin. But right around this time is the beginning of a changeover away from the pure weight of a precious metal to a coin that has the stamp of a government on it. Now, it, it has a certain weight and its values because it's a precious metal. It's not like a fiat currency of today. But it was an actual coin uh, as opposed to just a, a block of silver or gold. And it's, it's emanating from some outside source. Okay. Uh, the other issue about foreign influence is language. What language did the Jews of Eretz Yisrael speak in the early Second Commonwealth period? So when they go back to Israel as the returnees to Zion, many of them still spoke Hebrew. But Hebrew is giving way to Aramaic. Why? Because Aramaic is the lingua franca of the Persian Empire. Everybody's going to end up speaking Aramaic. This will also eventually give way, in parts of Eretz Yisrael, to Greek during the Hellenistic period. But Greek never fully uh, infiltrated the Jewish demographic so that even a thousand years later, Jews were still speaking Aramaic. Uh, despite Persian Empire being in the dustbin of history, uh, Greek only affected those who dealt in commerce and those who were assimilated. Okay. Yeah, Ksavah Shuri uh, uh, is, is credited to Ezra, so we're talking middle of the 5th century for the changeover from the Paleo-Hebrew script to the Ksavah Shuri. Yeah, okay. Um, what about the attitude of exclusiveness? If you read the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, you'll see foreigners are kicked out. 
The book of Chronicles, according to the Talmud, is written by the same author as the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. And who's that author? Ezra. But that's the traditional theory that's basically, uh, it cannot be supported by the, by, by the evidence. The, the Divrei Hayamim had to be written by somebody other than the author of Ezra Nehemiah because Chronicles has a softer line on intermarriage and that there, there continued to be elite unions, inter-ethnic marriages at the elite level all through the next few centuries between the Tobiads of Ammon and people in Egypt and the, uh, uh, and, uh, the Sumerians and Jews. There are unions that are clear as day in the text. So this idea of all foreigners are kicked out, yes, that's the attempt of Ezra and Nehemiah, and that's the, 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 the attitude of that book. But Divrei takes a much softer line. Okay. Um, <coughs> the books of Eov, Kohelet, Chanoch, are also written around this time. They do not uh, evince any degree of, Helen, of, of Hellenization despite them being likely, likely candidates. And there's the wisdom literature that's being written in the 4th century and is being ascribed to Shlomo HaMelech and earlier figures, or Chanoch from the days of the book of Genesis. These are authors who should have been influenced by Greek culture as it was infiltrating Eretz Israel, if it really was, except that we don't see any, any evidence of it in the text of these books. So that's uh, an, an argument against... Uh, infiltration of Greek culture, which is against Bickerman's point of view. So in the end, we have conflicting viewpoints in the scholarship, evidence that goes both ways. Your average Jew basically was living only amongst Jews, did not interact with other peoples, did not uh, learn other cultures, other than by accident because of commercial uh, interaction. Yeah. Who don't? Who live in the five towns? Think that's the way the world is. Yes, basically that's that's what that's the way it was. Okay, um, but on the economic scale, it would seem that all those who had contact because of business, because of interaction, yeah, probably were the quote unquote upper class or the elite portion yes. of the society. Yes, they were, and they were more than likely to be the less the least religious because of dealing with outsiders and having to make compromises with the matters of piety and also the, the quite likely scenario of marrying so-called outside the faith uh, for business purposes to cement ties with the neighboring populations. Okay. Um, it was not widely practiced. No, no. Okay. One thing about the Book of Chronicles that we find uh, time and time again is retrojecting what the author knows about the religiosity, the, the religious observance of his time onto the deep past. So, for example, Chronicles cha- uh, uh, 2, chapter 17, verse 9, Vayilamdu b'yehuda v'imahem sefer Torah Hashem v'yasobu b'cholare Yehuda v'yilamdu ba'am that they were teachers of Torah who taught the Torah of God and they circulated throughout all the cities of Judah and they taught the people. That's a wonderful thing. So the itinerant malamdim, and that the people should be knowledgeable in Torah. But that verse is talking about the age of Yehoshaphat, a king of the Davidic line, midway through the first uh, monarchy, first temple period. Were there really malamdim going from city to city in, in, in Judah in, in, in the year 800 before the Common Era? Absolutely not. 
The Sefer Torah, the Book of Torah, was basically unknown uh, to, to the people of Yehuda at that time. So why does the author of Chronicles say it? Because in his day, there are malamdim that are going around and around teaching people Torah. But it's projected back into the past. Another example, another example, Vayikahel David et kol Yisrael mi, Vayamidu davar lahavir kol v'chol Yisrael mi Be'er ve'adan The word went forth to all the Jewish people from Be'er to Dan. Lavola sot Pesach la'ashem alokei Yisrael b'Yerushalayim kilola rov asukakatuv To do the Passover offering in Jerusalem because it wasn't typically done. Now, this is said in chapter 30 about the days of uh, Hezekiah. Was there a major Kobam Pesach in the days of Chizkiyahu? We don't know. Maybe there was, maybe there wasn't. But even if there was, in most of the first temple period, they did not do the Kobam Pesach. In the second temple period, they did. So, religious practices that were commonplace in the second temple are being spoken of as though they happened in the first temple period. Now, there's another thing that we find in, in Chronicles. That David gathered together all of Israel from the Nile River to Levochamat, which is on the border of the Euphrates. Uh, to bring the Ark of God uh, to Jerusalem. Did David control the land of Israel from the Nile River, the eastern bank of the, of the Nile River, the, the Delta, all the way to the Euphrates? No. So why is the author of Chronicles saying this? To make it look better than it really was in the hopes that one day it really will be that good. So here Chronicles is, is, is finagling the, uh, finessing the past. And it, it wasn't really that way, but we wish it were that way and we wish it could be that way again. Okay. Um, why was it accepted into the canon if there are so many... Uh, Inconsistencies. Other books in the Tanakh. Other books of the Tanakh. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a good question. I, I, I don't. I don't really know. Uh, other than if it was regarded as part of Ezra Nehemia, and there were serious theological reasons to include Ezra Nehemia in the canon, then you could see how Divrei Yamim snuck in as well. But I, I, I don't have a good answer for that. Well, Daniel. The, parts of the problems with Daniel were more that it was too obvious that it was written very late. Unless you take a, a view that it's, uh, it's, it's prophecy looking forward, when in fact it's, it's looking back in the past. But the book itself is not so theologically objectionable. It's, very, it's a very good book and uh, you know, says favorable things about the, the destiny of, of our people. So I, I can understand why someone would want it in the canon, despite the technical objection. Okay, so... Then another another aspect of life in in fourth uh, century or fifth century BCE uh, in the Jewish world was the diaspora. So we have to examine what was happening in the diaspora, and there's only one community about which we know a whole lot, and that is the community of Elephantine Egypt, and the Temple of Elephantine, or Yeb as it was known then. Where is this place? It's in Upper Egypt. Where is Upper Egypt? Southern Egypt, not northern Egypt. Up is south, and down is north. Remember that. Always in fifth grade in global studies, I always got confused. But did they remember that? Yeah. So Upper Egypt is southern Egypt, near the where today is the Aswan Dam. There was an island in the in the Nile. 
where there was a military colony and there was a customs uh, depot. Who, who guarded it? Jews, together with some native Egyptians. When did Jews get there? Why are Jews there? So there's many, many theories as to how Jews got to Elephantine. One says that in the, around the year 650 before the Common Era, in the days of King Manasseh, the bad king of, of Judah, where he was an ally of Egypt against the onslaught of the Assyrians. And what did he do? He donated uh, troops, foreign mercenaries, Judahite soldiers, to the Egyptians in their desperate struggle against the Assyrians. And that these soldiers eventually were assigned to uh, an island uh, in the Nile where they would collect imposts and, uh, and defend the southern border. That's one theory. Another theory, in the days of Josiah, around the year 622, when the Deuteronomic reforms took place in the religion of the kingdom, and the book of Devarim and all the relevant laws were applied as, as, as uh, the law of the land, and the centralization of religious worship, which made the Bamot, the high places, the altars, verboten, forbidden, you cannot, do, you cannot worship anywhere other than Jerusalem. So what about those people who don't like the centralization of religious worship? What do they do? They leave, and they go elsewhere. They go to Egypt, and they start their own sanctuary. Would that happen again later in history? Yes. When? In the days of Onias, the Beit Chonyo. In about two months, we'll talk about Beit Chonyo, uh, the temple of Onias in the year 173 before the Common Era, also a Jewish temple in Egypt. So the, this theory says that in 622 or thereabouts, those who disagreed with the religious reforms of Devarim went to Egypt and made their own temple. Another theory... In 586, Jewish soldiers in Eretz Yisrael fighting the Babylonians who are conquering the country and defeating Jerusalem run away. And where do they go? The only place that will take them, Egypt. As we know that Yirmiyahu himself went to Egypt against his, against his wishes. He was forcibly taken there. So Jewish soldiers fleeing the carnage go to Egypt and put themselves in the service of uh, their Egyptian masters and end up in the southern part of the country uh, at, a, at a fortress on the island of, of Elephantine. A fourth theory, which is the most likely and with the most uh, serious uh, archaeological evidence in favor of it, that in the days of Jehoiakim, who was the second to last Ju Judahite king, 608 to 598, he was an ally of Paro Necho II, and maybe he sent Jewish soldiers to help in the campaign against Nubia, to conquer further south into, the, into the, the heart of Africa. This is the most likely explanation of why they were in southern Egypt, that they were fighting the Nubians. Okay, well, having gotten there, what do the Jews of Elephantine do? Religiously speaking, they have a temple. And when I say a temple, I don't mean a place of prayer, like a synagogue, like a shul. I mean a temple of animal sacrifice. And these were religiously very primitive people who believed in the efficacy of animal sacrifice and nothing else. What god did they worship? So they worshiped the god of Yahoo. Not why... A-H-O-O, -O, like the website, but Y-A-H-U, Yahoo, which is uh, the, the suffix of a lot of the names of the prophets. It's a divine name, Yerm Yahu, Yishayahu, so Yahoo. But other times, the name of, the, of their deity was Yahu Sabaot. Now, some say Sabaot is a, is a reference to Tzvakot, Tzadi Bey's Aleph Vav Taf, 
that the God is the God of hosts, the, legion, the, the God of the legions, the, 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 the martial, the military aspect of the, of the divine. Others say Sabaoth is a reference to the Sabbath, in that these people kept Shabbos, which was a novelty in, the, in, in Africa and Egypt where nobody else was keeping a Sabbath. Whatever it might be, that's what they were observing. However, they may have been uh, not so devoted to absolute monotheism, or even monolatry, the worship of one God while believing in, in the existence of others, because they also uh, recognized the Melechet Shamaim, the Queen of Heaven. The Queen of Heaven. Who is the Queen of Heaven? Isis. So, huh? That's not, that's not Isis. No. So some would argue that the Queen of Heaven, the Melechet Shamaim, is the, the consort of the Hebrew deity. That the Hebrew deity, the, you know, the, the, the God of, of the Bible, is a male, and that, that male has, as in many of the, 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 the mythologies of, uh, of other faith groups, has a female consort. Is the, what does the evidence suggest? Well, maybe, that people believe these things back then. But there's a, there are psukim in the Tanakh that's, that uh, are evidence for this. In the book of Yirmiyahu, chapter 44, verse 17, so of course, now we find the Tanakh here. So in dealing with the Egyptian community, Yirmiyahu uh, is very dissatisfied with what they say. We're going to do everything we said we're going to do. Lekater to offer incense lemalechet hashemayim to the Queen of Heaven, vehaseich la nesachim, and to offer libations to her. La, when do you ever find the deity is referred to in the feminine? In the Torah, we don't find that. La, no. Kashur asinu, as we have done, anachnu vaavotenu, malachenu visarenu. We and our forefathers and our kings and our princes, bearet Yehuda v'chutzot Yerushalayim in the cities of Judah and Jerusalem. And, you know, we did this and nothing bad ever came to us. Meaning, religion, worshipping of God is all about what's going to happen to you afterwards. Is God going to be favorably disposed towards you and and you'll you'll have a good life? Or is God going to be an angry and vengeful God and bad things will happen to you? So we did all this stuff. Our ancestors did this and no bad ever came of it. But it says, not just that we, uh, the Egyptian Jews and the boondocks, who are religiously syncretistic, uh, uh, did this, but rather rather our fathers in Jerusalem did it. Are they telling the truth? Could be. Could be. Could be that our ancestors in the days of, uh, of, the, of the Judaic kings worshipped a female consort deity and other gods as well. We know that they were not so devoted to the true faith. Okay. Now, what about... Uh, the, the, the halakha, the halakha at Elephantine. So if we take the approach that they were Jews who were dissatisfied with the reforms of religion that were done in the days of Yoshiahu, so it means they would disagree with the book of Devarim. They don't like the book of Devarim. Devarim says you have to go to only to the place where God chooses, the Makom Asher Yivchar, which is Jerusalem, and they disagree with that, so they go elsewhere, make a different temple elsewhere. Well, there's another halakha in the book of Devarim, regarding matrimonial law that leads to problems of the aguna. And what's that? 
A get. Who initiates the get? The man. The katavla sefer kritut v'natan biyada. So in elephantine, there was equal rights, depending on, uh, it doesn't matter what gender you are, for initiating divorce. So, so this, this is further evidence that they are rejecting the Sefer Devarim and are basically an earlier uh, recension of Torah is, is their understanding of the law. And so a woman can initiate a divorce. Just an interesting little point. Okay. What did the Jews of Jerusalem, after Ezra and Nehemiah, impose the full Torah on the community? What did they do to try to influence the Jewish communities of the diaspora? Did they try to make them more from? Answer, yes. So we find in the year 419, the Passover papyrus. The Passover papyrus. What is this? What is the Passover papyrus? It's a letter, it's an epistle, sent from Jerusalem, from the, the high priesthood, to the Jews of Elephantine, saying, you need to observe Pesach on the 15th of Nisan through the 21st of Nisan. Seven-day holiday, which, by the way, proves that there was no Pesach, there was no Yontif Sheni back then. There's a theory in the in, in the Achronim that Yontif Sheni goes back to the days of Yoshua ben Nun. That anyone, any Jew who lives outside of Israel, must keep two days Yontif. That's Baba Maisa, because we see clearly here, 2,500 years ago, there was no Yontif Sheni. Seven days holiday. Okay, why do they have to send a letter? Why do they have to send a letter that you have to do Pesach the 15th through the 21st? Answer: Because there's another day. According to the Torah, when possibly Pesach should be observed, it's in the book of Devarim, and it's in Parshish Re'eh, and it's in reference to the beginning of the counting of the Omer. What does it say? Shiva Shavuot Tisporlach, Mehachel Chermesh Bakama, Tachel Lispor Shiva Shavuot. From the time that the sickle hits the standing grain, you count seven weeks. So from Passover to Shavuot, you have this seven-week delay. And when is the beginning of the count? When the harvest of the barley begins. Well, that can vary from year to year. That's an agricultural matter based upon weather patterns, not an absolute calendrical matter. So what the authorities in Jerusalem are saying is, we no longer observe the, the pilgrimage holidays, the three major festivals of, of, of this religion, in an exclusively agricultural fashion. We observe it with an official calendar and in commemoration of the events of the Jewish past. So it's a holiday commemorating the exodus from Egypt, and it's on specific days of the year, 15 to 21 of Nisan. So get with the times, get with the program. Don't be so primitive to do Me'achel Chamesh uh, Bakama. At this particular point, was the calendar set? We didn't, need, we didn't need to uh, need witnesses and all that sort of stuff? There's a lot of question about that. We don't really know. We really don't know. No. Wasn't it Hillel? All right, so Hillel Shani get, gets rid of uh, the, the, um, the variability um, courtesy of the, the Kiddush HaKodesh al by witnessing and makes uh, what well, we basically what we have now, roughly what we have now. But we don't know 700 years before Hillel what was going on. We, we just don't have enough evidence. Okay, so the Passover papyrus is an attempt by Jerusalem to throw its weight around and say, we're in charge of the Jewish world. This is the only legitimate temple. You guys down there in Egypt don't know what you're doing. Listen to us. Nothing has changed. Okay. Now, do the Jews of Elephantine listen? We don't really know. We don't really know. But we know what happens at the end of uh, their uh, existence a few years later. 
In the year 411 <coughs> BCE, um, Egyptian nationalists burned down the temple at Elephantine. They had long considered the sacrificing of sheep to be deicide. There is a hint of this in the Torah. It goes back to the Torah. Why does it say in the Torah, the etzem lo bo, don't break a bone of the carcass of the paschal lamb, of the paschal sheep? Why? Just to stick it to the Egyptians that we ate their God, and they're going to see the carcass whole the next morning out on our doorstep. That was the idea of Etzim Bo. So antagonizing the religious sensibilities of the Egyptians was a long-standing Jewish pastime. Okay, but the Egyptians had enough of it, and they burned down the Temple of Elephantine. So the Jews uh, protest this to the Persians, and they stress how loyal they had been to Persian rule. So listen to this. The Jews went down there under the old pharaohs, and were loyal to the pharaohs. Under the rule of Cambyses in 525, the Persians defeated the pharaohs and conquered Egypt and ruled the country. The Jews switched their loyalties from the pharaohs to the Persians, and for the next 115 years were loyal to the Persians. The Egyptians get wild, burn down the temple, and temporarily kick out the Persians, but the Persians come right back in, and the Jews say, we were loyal to you. So respect our religious concerns, allow us to rebuild this temple. But the Persian government doesn't really give them a time of day, and so the Jews here are left to look to other allies in support of their religious uh, convictions. So who do they turn to? They turn to the Jews of Jerusalem, of Eretz Yisrael, their co-religionists, their kinsmen. Please uh, send us money and and supplies and, and moral support and political support in the effort to rebuild our sanctuary. Well, what are the Jews of Jerusalem going to do about rebuilding an, a, a competitor shrine 500 miles away? They're not going to be in favor of it. So they refuse to cooperate. So the, the Jews of Elephantine try another, another route. They say, we're going to go to the Samaritans. After all, they're quasi-Jewish. We're like them. We worship the same God. Maybe they'll support us. After all, they are renegades in the sense that they don't, they don't worship at the Shrine of Jerusalem. They have their, their place at Mount Gerizim, near Nablus. So they could appreciate the, our need for a, a separatist temple uh, in the Southlands, in Egypt. And the Samaritan governor gives them a favorable audience. Okay? Ultimately, a compromise is reached. A compromise is reached. That the temple is going to be rebuilt, and there will be meal offerings and incense offerings, but no animal sacrifice. So it's a halfway measure. This is the compromise with whom? The compromise with the Persians and with the, the Jews, too. Of Jerusalem. And, and of Samaria. General, comp- general consensus, you're going to have non, uh, non-animal sacrifice, you'll have meal offerings and incense, but, but no, uh, no sheep. What was the reason? Okay, why? No branch offers. Okay, so... From the Jewish point of view, it's, it's, a, it's a halfway measure that it's at least not as bad as having a full competitor Beit HaMikdash. In other words, we'd, the Jerusalem crowd would rather there be nothing, be no temple down there. But since we're not going to get nothing, we might as well limit what they can do, no, animal, no, cor- no real korbanot. From the Persian point of view, what they're hoping to do is avoid offending the religious sensibilities of the Egyptians, because you've got to keep the natives happy. 
and there was a nat- there was a native Egyptian temple right next door to the Jewish temple that worshipped the god of Kanum, K H N U M. Huh? Is that the Ram God? The Ram God, yeah. So realizing that the population is not so uh, f- favorably disposed towards Persian rule. You have to keep the people happy. Well, the way you keep the Egyptians happy is by not giving the Jews everything they want. And what can we take away? We'll take away the most offensive part of this temple, which was the animal sacrifice. That's the compromise. So the temple is going to be rebuilt. And around 406, 405, efforts to, to, to rebuild it are underway. But a few years after that, it's all destroyed again. Why? Because the native Egyptians once again overthrow the Persians and you have uh, indigenous rule which destroys the the Jewish colony of Elephantine. There are now no more Jews in Egypt. And Jews will not go back to Egypt until uh, the Alexandrian conquest, uh, the the Macedonian conquest of Egypt about 70 years later. So you have uh, this lull uh, in Egyptian Jewish history from the destruction of Elephantine (coughs) until uh, Alexander. Okay. The Book of Chronicles encourages political quietism. Don't don't rock the boat. Uh, life is okay under the Persians, and nobody expected the Persian government, the Persian regime, to fall. Also, Phoenicia uh, broke away from Persia in the year 351 upon Persia's failed attempt to conquer Egypt. Whenever you have an empire, a world empire that uh, tries to uh, overreach, tafasta marubalo tafasta. You grab too much, you don't grab anything. And how does that play out in international politics? If you're an, an, an international empire that goes too far in one direction, the indigenous peoples on the other side of the empire will realize you're weak, and they'll try to secure their own independence. So Phoenicia broke away at a moment of Persia's weakness. And Persia retakes Phoenicia in 343 and destroys the city of Sidon as punishment. So we see that although the Persians are nice, if you act up, bad things can happen. Therefore, don't act up. Don't act up. That's the lesson that the Jews had going into uh, the, the uh, the, uh, the Macedonian conquest. That Persia is very strong, we don't expect them to fall, we have to play nice with them. So since they're letting us be religious, why would we cause any trouble? Um, <coughs> there's a pasuk in, in Divrahayamim towards the end that criticizes Tzidkiyahu, the last Judahite king, and says the reason that he fell and the reason why the, common, the first commonwealth was destroyed and the temple was destroyed is that he broke an oath that he took with Nebuchadnezzar. That Nebuchadnezzar made him promise to be loyal to the Babylonian regime, a vassal's oath, a vassal's oath. And instead, what did Nebuchadnezzar, what did uh, Tzidkiyahu do? Uh, it says, Vaim Rodbo, Lishloach Malachav Mitzrayma, he sent emissaries to Egypt, Latetlo Susim Amrav, to secure cavalry, horses, and Amrav, a large number of infantry, foreign mercenaries. So 
the lesson that Tivrayamim is telling us, if you have a relationship with a world power, and it's a stable relationship, even if the Jews are the, uh, the weaker party and the subservient party, play along. Don't try to be too smart for your own good and secure an, uh, an alliance with another world power in the hopes of uh, achieving some kind of independence. It will fail. And because of Tzidkiyahu's broken oath, and this oath is again recorded in the book of Yechezkel, uh, chapter 17, um, that's why everyone uh, suffered. And that's why people were punished. This is part of the theology of, of Divra Hayamim that's very different from the theology of the book of Malachim. Okay, although they tell the same stories, their, their theology is quite different. In the book of Malachim, there are bad kings. A lot of bad kings. In fact, most kings were bad. Who were the good kings? Hizkiyahu, Yoshiahu, Asa, and Yehoshaphat. Basically, that's it. After David and Shlomo, David and Shlomo. Everyone else, bad. What did they do wrong? They didn't get rid of the Bamot. They allowed idolatry in the temple in the case of Manasseh. Uh, they married foreign wives in the case of Shlomo. Uh, all sorts of uh, uh, transgressions. Religious and political transgressions. But what happened? The dynasty continued. The temple wasn't destroyed. The commonwealth wasn't destroyed until 586. But that's 400 years in. Ultimately, it's destroyed because of the collective uh, demerits of the earlier generations. So people are punished for the sins of the fathers. Okay. Now, in Chronicles, that's not the case. People are punished for their own sins, not for the sins of the fathers. And so, for example, when Uzziah tries to do the Ketoret, uh, in the temple, even though he's a king and not a Kohen, he's punished with leprosy and dies as a, as, a, as, a, as a repulsive leper. And why is the temple destroyed? Not because of the collective demerits and avarus of all the other kings that came before him, but because Tzidkiyahu broke the, the vassal's oath. That's the idea. Which one is a better theology? That we're, we're, that we're, we're going to suffer for the, the sins of our fathers or that we suffer for our own sins? Okay, what appears in the Torah? All right, so in the, in, in the, the, the Ten Commandments, it says that we're punished for four generations, the Rebbeim, uh, if, if we continue in the ways, if, well, we, we're punished for four generations for the sins of our ancestors. The rabbinic interpretation is if we continue in their evil ways, and that we're, we're, we're blessed for uh, 2,000 generations for good, you know, for good, if our ancestors they did good. We, but it also says in the Torah, each one will die for himself. The sons will not die for the sins of the fathers, and the fathers not for the sons. So that's in Devarim. Devarim represents a more impressive theology, a more advanced theology than the earlier books. So Divrei Hayamim, which says you die for your own sin, is uh, along the lines of Sefer Devarim, whereas the book of Malachim uh, is ironically along the lines of the Ten Commandments. Why would the book of, of, of Divrei Hayamim, the chronicler, prefer this theology, that we die for our own sins, we're rewarded for our, own, for, our own, for our own mitzvos, and not associated with the good or bad deeds of those who came before us? Because Why? You're dead, you're dead in the water, because you know what your ancestors did. All right, so that's, that's part of the answer. Uh, basically, 
they knew the transgressions of, uh, of the Israelite past. And they also knew of their improved piety. So better to think that God's attitude towards us is going to be based upon our, our current contemporary behavior and not a, the polytheistic uh, bad behavior of the, you know, ten generations earlier who were not so devoted to the one true God of Israel who also may have worshipped the, 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 the Queen of Heaven and Asherah and Baal and every other you know, uh, sinister deity in the pantheon. Better we shouldn't connect ourselves with that. But rather... In the here and now, we're doing okay. God will be good to us. That was the lesson of the Rehayamim. That don't worry uh, about not having achieved messianic times. We're not, we're not going to think about that. We're just going to think about the fact that right now things are quiet and pleasant. And they'll remain that way. They will remain that way if you, and you, and you, and you, and you, study Torah and do mitzvahs. And don't worry about the fact that a long time ago, our, uh, you know, Terach Avi Avraham Vavin Achor, Mitzchila Ovdev Vodazara Hayu Avusenu, that our, like it says in the Haggadah on Pesach, our ancestors worshipped idols. That was our ancestors, it's not us. So the theology of Chronicles is positive towards the contemporary situation. Okay, we'll stop here. Next time, we'll deal with Alexander showing up on the scene. Did he really meet Shimon Hatzadik? The answer is, of course not. All right. <laughs>